Here we are now, with chapter number 18 in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. This chapter is called, But Not a Dead One. And we'll get to why this chapter is called this soon enough. Treya and Ken, well, they return home to the US of A between treatments in Germany because they're realizing that it's taking Treya quite a long time to recover and they'd like to be back with their friends and their dogs and at their house. And Treya is moving deeper and deeper into a connection with what's happening right now. And peace with her situation is not exactly how Ken puts it. He calls it more of a mixture of genuine acceptance and melancholy forbearance. Because they understand very well the gravity of her situation. And yet in spite of that, Treya still has a strong equanimity and a joy in life. She has a joy in life that happens to be increasing. And she's just happy to be alive now. And she's forgetting about tomorrow. And Ken finds this mood of Treya's, well, it's positively infectious. He finds that he's actually starting to become more present with the now. And life is very different when you say, be damned from tomorrow. Or damn tomorrow, not we will be damned from tomorrow. (laughs) But to damn tomorrow in a, not in a, it's not a fear of the future. It's not a fear of what might come. It's, It's simply a letting go. And all the things that you do, the normal things, the simple things, well, they become extremely important. And not important like it's a responsibility or something that you have to do. But there's a simply uh, an aliveness to them, a playfulness around them. And Treya is doing her things. She's playing with the dogs or potting plants in the garden or working on her fused glass artworks and things like these. And she's just happy with her sense of the present moment. And it's an unending series of moments. And this is a lesson, well, that Treya is not only demonstrating deeply for herself, but also wearing off on Ken. Now, there was one thing that they missed out on, which was one of these awareness retreats that Treya wanted to go on. And they figured it was best that, well, Treya didn't go. It's like a meditation retreat or an awareness t- uh, an awareness intensive. But one of the things that happened on this intensive while Treya was away was that actually 
she was somehow involved in a very strange way in just this one moment, which was when they were doing this technique where this is very powerful if you've ever done this, and this is quite tricky and it can reveal a lot about yourself. But what you do, this is what they were doing. They would say, okay, you stand up in the group and everyone will stand around and watch you and you have to come up with one word that describes you. And then you call out that word and if everyone is convinced and they think, yeah, that does suit you, then they'll clap and cheer and they'll say, yes, that's it. Well done. And this is very powerful. This is one of the strengths of group work. Because when you're in that situation, you have all eyes on you, then you really go for it. You really have to discover what what are you. And people know you to varying degrees and people are reading the situation to varying degrees. But because all eyes are on you, all the attention is focused on you, your awareness is heightened, which allows you for a moment to shoot into your self-knowledge. It's like a bullet to your self-knowledge. And if you take that shot and you get that shot, well, then you come out with the jewels, which is that you can come up with this one word that expresses how you are. Now, most people take a couple of goes, and this is the case from how Ken describes what was happening while Treya wasn't there, which is normal. I mean, it's normal to take a couple of goes, and people would come up with things like, oh, I'm I'm a turtle, or I am rain, or things like this, and and they'd be like, you know, the crowd would be like, no, 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 that's not working. No, I'm not convinced. And then until something, you know, you have to keep having different goes of it. And eventually, well, then you get it. Now, someone was there who knew Treya wanted to be on this retreat. And in fact, many people knew she was wanting to be there, but couldn't be there. And of course, Treya was known to many of the people there. And someone stood up and said, Okay, now someone isn't here, but I'm going to say a word for them. And many people knew it was Treya that she was talking about. And this person jumped up and said, I am joy. And immediately, everyone clapped and cheered for Treya. Because it just fit that she is joy. It just resonated. And that really does sound like, what an amazing story. It really does say say a lot about Treya. It's a beautiful illustration of what sort of person we're talking about here. And the fact is that, well, she's going even deeper by living in the present, by refusing to worry about the future, by being perfectly conscious of death, perfectly conscious of her situation, and yet allowing it to be within the larger experience of her existence, which is something joyful, because she is, well, she is joy. 
And there's a Zen koan, well, a Zen story that goes along with this that further helps to illustrate living in the moment and what it means to know about death or not know about death or come to terms with death. And Ken tells this story and he says, well, it goes like this. A student comes to a Zen master and asks asks him, well, what happens to us after death? And the Zen master says, I don't know. And the student is shocked. The student's taken back, like, what? You don't know? You should know everything. You're a Zen master. This sort of response. To which the Zen master says, yes, but not a dead one. Yes, he is a Zen master, but he's not a dead one. And that further helps to illustrate what it means to be living in the present moment. So I've got a question for you. It's a bit of a cheeky question. hope it doesn't put you on edge too much, but I'm going to ask it because it's related to our narrative and what happens next with Ken in our story as we follow along. Have you ever been with a hooker? Have you ever paid for intimacy? Paid to a professional sex worker? Now it might be that, well, you haven't gone all the way. No, no, I wouldn't do that, no. It might be that, well, there are degrees. You might have a lap dance. It's not quite the same as going all the way. You might take a look. If you're in a club and if they're there for looking... Where do you draw the line? When is it okay? And it might be, well, you're just in a situation and you find yourself, oh, this is the situation I'm in, I'll just go along with it for now. And then you look back and think, oh, I wonder what I was thinking. But it is a situation that comes up. And a related question is, well, would you go with a hooker if you were married? And you'd found your life partner? And what would your what would your wife say? What would your partner say? If you did? How would they feel about you having relations with a professional sex worker? Is it clear in your relationship? Can you easily answer that? Do you know confidently? And depending on where you're at with your relationships, well, it might be that even just asking such a thing would be too much of a stirring of the pot. Now, I'm not suggesting you you walk up to your loved one and just say, now... Honey, how would you feel if I went with a hooker? (laughs) I don't know if that's the right way to approach 
the in and out of this dynamic. You might need a little bit of more of a soft opening than that. And of course, it does depend on how you feel about it. If it's clear to you, is it something that just doesn't happen because you don't go looking for it? Is it something that, given the opportunity, well, who knows? Maybe it's clear, maybe it's not. And Ken, well, what does Ken do? Has Ken thought about these things? Has Ken got a stance? And it comes up, well, because they go back to Germany on their third round of treatment. And there's not a lot for Ken to do, so he finds himself wandering the streets at all hours, just walking around, seeing what's happening. And one night he sees, well, a place that's called Nightclub, it says on it. And he wonders what it is exactly, but then decides, no, I won't go in. And then he keeps walking and then he sees another one, Nightclub. Okay. And he keeps walking again and then he sees, well, here's another one. And he says, well, what the hell? And he goes into the building and he notices, well, the door's locked, even though there's music inside. There's nobody on the streets. And there's some sign in German about the doorbell, which he presumes is about how to enter. So he presses the door bell, a buzzer rings and the door opens. And then he goes in, and he's looking around, and there are some old men accompanied by girls. And there's a disco ball, and there's some furry walls, and dim lighting, and a bit of a dance floor, a bit of a bar, and he says, oh, well, what's going on here? And he's a bit out of place. Everyone's looking at him like, oh, who's this big American bald man coming in here? What are we going to do? And he takes a place at the bar, and all of a sudden, well, a girl comes up to him. And he thinks, oh, okay, so this is a whorehouse. This is a brothel, right? Oh, dear. I'm sorry, do you speak English? And she does speak English. And he says, well, no offense, but is this a whorehouse, right? You know whorehouse? And she says, yes, but no, this is not a whorehouse. Oh, isn't it? Okay, so she says it's not a whorehouse. Okay, so he's a bit confused. So he asks, wait, so this isn't a whorehouse. These are not prostitutes. You know prostitutes? You know what this means? He asks her. And she says, no, no, they're not prostitutes. And he says, oh, well, sorry. That's just a bit confusing at the moment. And she says, well, do you want to buy me a drink? And he says, well, sure, sure. I'll buy you a drink. And then he says, look, I'm not a cop, you know. I'm not here to cause trouble or anything. Do you know what a cop is? And she says, yes, I know you're not a cop and you don't have to keep saying, well, I'm not a hooker. You don't have to keep confusing yourself. And he says, oh, sorry, I'm really confused. This is like a dance club, right? You know what I mean? He says to her and she's like, well... You can dance if you want, but this is not a dance club, it's a nightclub. And they get talking and 
Ken shares a bit of his story. He says it tells this young lady about Treya and his fight with cancer and all that they've been doing and all these sorts of things. And they talk for quite a long time. And Ken, well, he decides to get up and leave. And just as he's leaving, this girl says, hey, well, don't you want to go upstairs? And Ken goes, ah, I got it. I knew it. This is a whorehouse. You are a prostitute. Well, he doesn't say that quite like that, but he's thinking it. And then he says, hmm, okay, well, why not? Let's see what happens. And he buys a bottle of champagne and they go upstairs and they put on some music and they find some quiet corner and they sit down and, well, turns out there's, that, there's actually a, a bit of a seeing room, seeing window where they can look and see some girls having a bit of a strip tease, a bit of a dance. And then he says, okay, well... Listen, lady, you obviously lied to me because this is a whorehouse. Why did you lie to me? And she says, no, this is not a whorehouse because no sexual intercourse happens here. It is illegal in Germany. And no one for no price will do that. And Ken's sort of thinking, well, okay, well, I know I'm naive, but what exactly do you do if you don't do that? And she says, well, other things. And there are other options. And then she gets naked and stands there right in front of Ken. And Ken just stares at her. This naked woman that he's found in a nightclub in Germany. And of course, many things go through his head. Because... His mind is lost in the world of bodies and flesh. And he's had a lot to deal with over these last few years because sex is, well, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a dicey proposition. Especially for a woman who's had breast breast cancer. Because at first there's the whole problem of how the woman relates to her body. She may feel it is disfigured in a way. And it's no secret that in our society, the breasts are the most visible and prized symbol of a woman's sexuality. That's just how culture is at large. That's just how the woman is celebrated. And so losing one or both breasts can be very hurtful for a woman. And Treya, well, she's taken this quite well. And she does have a missing breast. And she has complained on occasions. But by and large, she's okay. And then on the other side of this, well, she might have been having treatment, which in Treya's case she has, that has made her too tired for sex. And then she's feeling, well, she can't be with her man. She can't service her man, for want of a better word. Don't know if we really need to divulge this conversation into euphemisms. (laughs) I'll try and avoid too many euphemisms. We're treading lightly here. (laughs) 
But then, well, then you've got two issues when your woman can't service the man because then she's got guilt. So she's got self-worth image, self-image issues or self-worth issues and then the guilt as well. And this can be very hard for a woman who's had breast cancer. And actually, well, there's a statistic, which is that almost half of all husbands whose wives have had mastectomies leave them within six months. Because, well, the truth is that she can't sexually respond to him. And Ken thinks about this some more and he figures out, well, what if we put it into a percentage or a fraction? And he figures that, well, Trey's or Ken's attraction for Treyer was, as he says, dented by possibly around 10%, just from a detectile feel of the symmetry of two breasts. But the other 90% for him, well, it's still overwhelmingly positive. And it just didn't matter. So we're talking about a 10% issue here. And Trey could tell this. Trey knew he was being honest. And that helped her, well, easily, more easily come to terms with her own self-image. Because that 90%, well, that's still the most beautiful and attractive woman that he has ever known. And of course, Ken and Trey, they're relating on all levels, not just the body. They're relating on mind. They're relating on emotions. They're relating on soul. And they're relating on spirit. And it's these other qualities, well, they occupy so much for them. So the level of the body, it's not too important. And yet, well, at this moment, Kenny's feeling, well, it is quite nice to relate to someone's body. And that 10% at times does come back. So he does have a little bit of a play with this woman in this nightclub. And he figures, well... This is just a moment. And many men are frightened of having sex with their partners when they have cancer because they might feel that they will hurt them. And it's something that is actually very hard to talk about. It's quite hard to bring up. And not only between the partners, but also with the doctors. And when many men... Many men who have partners who are going through cancer, well, the thing that they ask about most importantly is, well, what what can we do? What can't we do? How do we, you know, what, what is the issue? It's just another, it's just another ball of complexes, a ball of options, a ball of things which are forcing you to be honest and clear and to have the difficult conversation and to really just Know yourself, know your partner, and know what your relationship, know what's between you in your relationship. And Ken, well, he sort of snaps out of it. 
he thinks, what, you know, what, what, what is this? This is so silly. And he sort of picks himself up and says, okay, well, I've got to go. And he says, well, there's nothing wrong with it. It can be a noble profession if it's chosen freely. But it's just not his style. And Ken has remained fully faithful to Treya. And he intends to, say, to stay so. And this is something, well, each man has to decide for himself. And it has to be clear for him. Are you going to fool around with prostitutes? Are you going to fool around with other girls on the side? Or are you just going to have that one love? That one special someone? And it might be, well, then you can talk about, talk about it with your partner. And as it happens, well, in the past, Treya had even suggested to Ken that he goes to a certain place in Reno to have a bit of fun. And, he, and her attitude was, well, why, why should you miss out just because I'm on chemotherapy? It's just a matter of relating to the body. It's just a bodily need. We'll still be together. So she's actually very well, well, she's very liberal thinking on the subject. But Ken's decided, well, it's just not his style. It's just not for him. So he goes back. And a few days later, he tells Treya the whole thing, the whole story of how he sort of just stumbled into this awkward Strange situation by chance, followed his nose into a funny spot, and then got himself out. And Trey's response was, well, she laughed. And she said, you should have gone for it. Rats, says Ken. So that's the end of that funny little twist in our plot. So back in Germany, or back in the clinic, where Trey is about to get her third round of high-dose Deutschland chemotherapy, the doctor, Dr. Schief, their main doctor, is going over some of the test results. And they're at a critical point. They're at a critical point, a very critical point. And Dr. Sheaf lays out some of the options and some of the facts or tricky parts of the situation which they have to deal with because interpretation is of vital importance. And the way Treyer is now, this is how it this is how it comes across in this story. The way Treyer is, well. She sits down and the doctor, this Dr. Sheaf, explains to her that she's got these tumours. They are there. But it looks as though they're inactive. So it looks as though they're stable and they're not growing, but they're still there. And it could be, well, this is part of the tricky interpretation. It could be that, well, a lot of the tumour is there, but it's dead. So it's possible to have dead tissue in there. 
which also, well, on the other hand, could mean that it can grow again. It can start again. And the tricky thing is that overtreatment could make things worse. Because if 80 to 90% of the remaining cells are not growing, then a third treatment could have a chance to kill only the 10 to 20% that is growing, but that would also temporarily suppress the immune system and thus, thus make it possible for the now dormant 80 to 90% to start growing again, thus make the situation worse. So it's like, here's the choice. You can, you can go after the last 10% at risk of having the 80 to 90% flare up again, or you can just wait and stop because now it seems like she's in a sort of stable way. And that's the choice you have to... It's a, it's a, what a choice to make. What a... I mean, this is, this is cancer at its most brutal. And, that, and that, this is something that's come up again and again throughout these stories. It's the choices. The dilemma of the choice you have to make. And it's always put in such complicated terms with so many unknowns. And also, well, there is a lot of scientific and sort of medical terms surrounding it, which you don't really understand. Like, do you know what enzymes are? I still don't really know what enzymes are. And Trey and Ken, well, they're quite good at understanding that. But essentially, it comes down to a tough choice. And the verdict is that well they're not going to go th- they're not going to go ahead with this treatment. And Treyer agrees, Ken agrees, and Doctor Sheaf agrees. So they're going to look at alternative medicines, and Sheaf says absolutely that's a good idea. And. He does say, well, it's important to understand the difference between toxic and non-toxic treatments. Because there are treatments, well, if you do them and they don't work, they haven't done any damage. And yet there are treatments that, if they don't work, they will do damage. And Sheaf says that the one they're looking at doing is non-toxic, so there's no problem with it. And he has gives them their blessing to go ahead. And there's also a few moments for Ken and Trey to have some time, some quiet time in Germany and to look around. And Treya does have one last comment to say, which is that, well, there are moments of boredom. There are moments of simply not really knowing what to do and just looking around. Because when you're recovering or you're waiting for test results or you're in a certain country, you can't do your normal work. And outside of the hospital, well, you're really just going around and 
being. And Treya comments that, well, people who have kids don't have this problem. Because the kids are always there to cause a ruckus, make a mess. And do something and draw you into your aliveness. And for here, at this time in our story, well, Treya is confronting the last of her boredom. And she's making that step back towards just being. And allowing the moment to be enough as it is. And this continuous movement towards the present moment, towards the now, is starting to be a very powerful crescendo for Treya. It's starting to be a snowball where each moment she lives becomes more important. And that's seeping into every part of her life. And she's starting to realize that, well, there's a good chance this is the last time I will see this doctor. This is the last time I'll travel to Europe. This could be the last time I see this family member or friend. Or have this moment. And yet she's realizing the importance of the moment without having those things as dark clouds hanging over her. And that's where the chapter ends. They go back to America to start their alternative treatment because the hardcore Deutschland chemotherapy didn't work. And we'll be back very soon with the next chapter. And that's all I have to say for now.